Welcome. This is Karen Modakaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet on KDRT 95.7 FM. Do you want to tap into your true power? My mentor and frequent guest, Martha Beck, is here to help you guide you to your own true power. Martha is a life coach and best-selling author of several books. Her latest is The Martha Beck Collection. Essays for Creating Your Right Life. And these essays are from O, the Oprah Magazine column that she writes each month. Martha, hello and welcome back. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Um, It's always a pleasure. So I really wanted to talk into this tapping into our own true power. And first, can you share with my listeners the powerless statements or powerless beliefs that tend to get in people's way? Sure. It's interesting. Um, Maybe your readers or your listeners have heard of something called learned helplessness, where they did an experiment where they put dogs in cages and shocked their feet. And some dogs had a way to to get away from the shock. And other dogs, no matter where they went, the shock was still there. And when they opened the cages, what happened was the dogs that had been unable to escape the pain did not even leave the cages. So they thought they were helpless. And a lot of people grow up that way in a family, for example, that they can't leave as little kids, and then they feel helpless forevermore. So they're caught in a cage, and their language reflects it. So anything like, this happened to me, um, as innocent as it may seem, is less empowering than, huh, I wonder why my soul invited this teaching or whatever. That sounds very new age. But if you can find a way to frame language that is not passive, you actually prime your mind to learn to get out of its cage. And you'll realize that almost everything that you feel stuck in, you are stuck in because of learned helplessness, because of your mind. So stop stop using I can't, I have to, I don't have time, and start using phrases like I choose to, I choose not to, or I'm giving my time to something else. Martha, would the phrase I should be also a form of learned helplessness? Definitely. Yeah, good luck with that one. Because <laughs> if you're saying you should be doing something, you're not doing it. And just the phrase, I should. So in, in AA groups, they say, oh, you're, sh- you're shooting all over yourself. Because it really has a toxic effect, rarely does any good. Um, if you think you should do something and you're not doing it, flip that around and see if maybe there's a reason that you shouldn't be doing it. Okay. Ooh, ooh, that just helped me with a task I've been putting off. I'm like, holy crap, I'm not supposed to do that. That's why I haven't been doing it. <laughs> I love this. Corinne, you're a genius. I'm always <laughs> glad to be of help, Martha. Always glad to be of help. So, so I want to go into that real quick, though, because when, you know, we can talk about that on the air, right? Or you can write about right. it or give a talk, you know, in your speaks, in your top, in your speeches. How does somebody apply that when they go, well, I don't really want to do that, but it's on my list or it's something that I need to do? Well, you start to realize that you make the list. You really, truly create that list. So if you say, you know, I should go get a mammogram, which is not a pleasant experience, especially if you're a man, but let's just say you're going to get a physical checkup. Um, 
it, you can say, you know what, I'm going to take that off my list. I choose to do something else. I realize that my risks are higher and it might not be a wise choice. That's really different from saying, I have to, I have to, I have to. If there's something scary like that, you'll probably end up, if you have empowerment language, saying, I really don't want to do this, but I'm going to choose to do it for my health's sake. And that's a really different psychological perspective than saying, I have to, I have no choice. That have to, that trap of language is actually experienced by the body as extreme stress. And that is likely to cause you all kinds of um, physical and psychological degenerative illness. You know, as you said that I choose to, I could just I choose to, yeah. feel off my shoulders, all the tension coming off my shoulders. Oh, really? Yes. That's awesome. Yes. And that the body relaxing is the sign that you found the truth. And that's, it's, it's really important to do that because the truth sets us free, literally. Mm-hmm. And so I really want to get this clear for my listeners. It's not about saying, oh, well, I'm just, I don't want to do the mammogram, so I'm not going to go do it. It's nope. it, 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 if the mammogram is important to you, right, exactly. then you will find a way to reframe it so that it there's less drudgery to it and it becomes more of a place. For less, it's not even so much drudgery with that. It's there's fear, but there's also courage. So I'm going to choose to look this in the face. Um, I know that I have a choice, but my choice is to do this, even though it frightens me. Can you feel how empowering that is. That is the hero's statement. Mm-hmm. I choose to do this even though I'm terrified. That's, what, that's Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, I really don't want to do this, but if this is the way it's going down, I'll do it. And I love that too because it's honest, right? It's not it's saying... honest. Yeah, it's not whiny. It's not victimy. I will tell you, I just, I just wrote a column where it's about how to deal with toxic people in your life. And um, I compared it to having pirates sail up to you on board a ship and you have to deal with them. And that whole, the whole metaphor was of being pirated at sea. And the art director said he would rather do it with a picture of a plant being strangled by weeds. And I said, that will not do. I sort of, I, I went to the mat for it because it's like, if you have an image in your mind of something like a plant that cannot move, Mm-hmm. You will behave as if you have no power. So even the even the metaphors we choose, whether you see yourself as a hero or as a victim, that flower the flower being choked is a victim. The the captain sailing the ship away or fighting the pirate is no victim. And that is a crucial difference to think of yourself as the captain of your fate rather than the helpless plant being choked by weeds. Oh, I love it. And and you're saying that. By using your language, that can help you redirect. Oh, absolutely. The way we think is through language. It's something called linguistic epistemology. The way our minds are constructed is through the way we tell the stories of our lives. And we tell those stories through metaphor. So anything you think, oh, I want to do, I, I need to do this, think of a metaphor. Like, I'll do it with you so that the listeners can hear. So what's something you th- feel like you have to do even though you don't want to? Uh, get my office organized. Okay. So you're going to, you, you don't, we are really clear that you don't have to organize your office. The world would not stop spinning if you chose not to. <laughs> hence the re- yes. Hence the reason it is the way it is. <laughs> exactly. So it's fine. Everything's going on great. And you have a disorganized office. Now, 
what you when you think of your disorganized office and cleaning it out, and if I say to you, what's that like? I'm asking you to think of a metaphor that's like the cluttered office. For example, it's like going to the dump and mm-hmm. looking at the stacks of garbage and just being overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. Or it's like having a fight with someone and thinking, I don't want to go near you. What does it feel like? It feels heavy. Mm, so already it's a metaphor because heavy is a sensation that can't be an activity. So you're already calling it by a metaphor as it's a heavy object. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what is a heavy object that you can think of? A boulder. Okay, so it's like a huge boulder. Now we're going to change the metaphor a little bit. Um, what if your office, instead of being like a huge boulder, is like um, a party of people who are associating freely and happily with each other, and it looks chaotic, but actually it's a joyful, creative process. Okay, I can get, I can get that, yep. I can see that. Yeah, I'm just, and this is arbitrary. You need to come up with your own metaphors. But if you look at it like that, it suddenly will start to feel a little different for you. Mm-hmm. So when people tell me, I, for example, I was dealing with my friend, the horse whisperer, who had issues with money. And I said, well, what is money like? And she's like, money is like this, this prize that I have to go win every day. And I said, well, what if mm-hmm. money is like a horse and it really loves playing with you? And Right then, I noticed her energy shift around money, and she started making more money almost immediately because of the metaphor she was carrying with her in herself. I mean, the metaphors you live by shape everything. So examine them, change them, tell a different story. That's our whole coaching thing, tell a different story. Yes, and a true story. Yes, a truer story, because if something feels heavy and dark, it's not the truth. The truth sets you free. So if it feels freeing to you, that's true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I don't mean freeing to like go out and, you know, be selfish and molest people or whatever, because that doesn't feel like freedom either. What feels like freedom is anything that causes the body and the true inner self to kind of go, <sighs> and the one you have the most access to is your body. So look for a truth that feels easy and light in the body. One of the things, Martha, I talk with my clients about is being in alignment with yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Being in line with who you are. And then that's that oh, feeling. So because yeah. I do think people think, oh, well, if if I go in this route, I'm going to be really selfish. But we're not because most of us aren't selfish by nature. You can tell me where I'm wrong with that. But well, here's the sorry. Go ahead. Go. It's an interesting thing. I just read this today in a, in a book by an Indian yogi. He said, somebody's free who's free to do what he likes is still in bondage because he's going to be a slave to what he thinks he wants. And he said, somebody who is free to do what his soul must do is truly free. So we get stuck in our culture at the stage of pursuing things that we we want and pushing away things that we don't want and we think that that's freedom but we're still a slave to our desires when that happens so when you're truly free it's free to do the things that are so deep in your soul that the idea of greed never even comes up it's like the freedom to give birth when your body is ready to give birth it's a very different feeling. Ooh, i really like that yeah. Being free to have all you desire is not freedom. Being free to follow your soul's true path is freedom. 
And so what is freedom for you? How does that look like for you? It's interesting because it, it looks like an inner space first, and then it becomes outer. So freedom, like this is very much what just happened to me the last few months ago. I realized that I, I felt like I wanted to sit in absolute stillness in meditation for at least two hours a day. Now, I am extremely busy. There's like, I'm, I'm pathologically busy most of the time. So the idea of clearing out my schedule so that I could sit for two full hours every day, I mean, that was a huge thing for me. For a healthy person, it wouldn't have been, but for me, it was. And I thought, you know what? I, my soul must do this. It was like, it was like I had to give birth to a baby, and there was no, you know, there was a choice to say no, but it was tortured my soul. So I wiped almost everything off my calendar, and people got really upset at me. And I began in those two-hour meditations every day to experience something that was such a deep level of freedom. It was a freedom to go to a sense of self that was rooted in the absolute essence of my being without any reference to material things or to physical reality. It's a freedom so deep down that the prospect of death doesn't trouble it in the slightest. That, to me, is my true freedom, but I had to take the freedom to free up my schedule before that deep spiritual freedom was able to reach me. Mm -hmm. And with that, didn't you have to let go of people getting mad at you or people's expectations of what you needed to do for them? Absolutely. Still do. You know, I had a friend call me late last night. Oh, I'm in a panic. Why haven't you called? And I'm like, sorry, I've been sitting in silence for two hours. <laughs> did this, you... did not, this did not sit well with this particular person. <laughs> and they're like, oh, you're such a selfish bitch. And I'm like, yeah, well, okay, let me sit and meditate on that. And I'll, I'll see what I think of it. Because, boy, in the meditation, when I free myself to do what my soul wants, even people getting mad at me becomes this huge lesson. Oh, my gosh, I realize I've been living my entire life out of the fear of people being mad at me. Is that how I want to live my life? No. Now I have the freedom to choose not to because I've seen it. And I did that by doing what my soul desired instead of what I thought I should. Let's talk about fears, because isn't fears what limits us from tapping into our own power? Yeah, and most people think it is their power. When I wrote um, Steering by Starlight, I wrote something about, you know, the goal being to be free of all fear. And the editor wrote in the margins of the book, this is wrong. If people don't have their fear, they will do nothing. And I'm like, okay, this is when we, <laughs> we encounter the editor's point of, <laughs> point of perspective in her own life. So I kind of had to coach her out of it. And um, basically what I tell people now about that is, if you've ever been in love or you've ever wanted someone to be in love with you, what gave you the energy to keep thinking about them? What gave you the energy, if you ever got together, to keep kissing each other? How did you ever, I mean, if you weren't afraid, why would you do anything? And the answer is love, passion, desire, truth. Those things are the most powerful motivating forces in the world, and they cannot come to drive the boat until your fear is gone. Or at least you're... you're enslavement to your fear is gone. Mm-hmm. You have to set yourself free from fear and then you find out what real motivation feels like. It feels like it. <laughs> and so does fear come back and try to visit with you? 
sorry, fear is what? Does fear come and try to visit with you? Oh, heavens to Betsy, it's there all the time. <laughs> it's like, so, hello, fear. It's like, hello. I'm like, you're looking really weird today. <laughs> I do what I say. And I'm like, well, let me think about it for an hour. And I can sit there and I have the most absolute panicky desire to get up and just run and do anything. And I will not move. One one example is I went and talked to Deepak Chopra's wonderful retreat in Canada a couple months ago, and I was putting on high heels for the to give my speech, and I thought, wait, why am I putting on these shoes? They're not comfortable. Am I putting them on because I love pretty shoes? Because I've done that before, and that, I think, is worth it. I thought, nope, you know why I'm putting these on today is fear of what people think of me if I don't wear heels. So I put on cowboy boots, and I went there, and the organizers were aghast. They were like, uh you're wearing cowboy boots. Okay. And I'm like, sorry, to wear anything else would have been to follow fear rather than love. And I am just too damn old for that. (laughs) So instead I got up and I told the audience why I was wearing cowboy boots and they all cheered. (laughs) (laughs) Because they don't want to be a slave to their clothing fears either. So, and it sounds like just showing up and talking to fear or showcasing the fear can help the fear not... Uh, embody you. Yeah, you sit there and you watch the fear and then you see that the one who is afraid is this small, um, sometimes an inner child, sometimes just a terrified inner adult. And you give compassion, consideration, calm to that terrified self and then the fear dissipates. Sometimes it comes and goes. I love this quote from uh, the feminist Audrey Lorde. The more I am willing to use my power in the service of my vision, the less it is important whether I am afraid. Ooh. It just doesn't matter. Fear is just like it's the horrible, nasty, grumbling psychopath that you've got in the back seat of the car of your life, and it's just going to sit there and scream bad advice the entire time. You're just going to have to live with it there. <laughs> well, Sorry. That- and no, I think this is great. So when do you think when we're in service, the, the reason that we get so motivated in service is because it's coming from a place of love? Yeah, if we do it for that reason, if you do service from a place of not love, then it's very toxic. I've had people say, you know, I literally had someone say to me, a celebrity called me up and said, you know, this one another celebrity is getting all this publicity for doing a thing in Peru for the indigenous people. I got there first. I, I had Peru. Peru was mine. Why am I not getting the attention? And I was like, seriously? That's why you did it? Well, that's why nobody paid any attention. It, was, it looked like service, but it was actually service to your own ego and your desire to look like a wonderful, compassionate person. You know, reality does not go well with those little deceptions, and people don't buy them. It has to be real. Ooh, I, I really, because you hear a lot of times people's talking about being of service, but the being of service really needs to be, have that underlaying of love behind it. Yeah. And you will be guided to the things you're supposed to love. Like at a certain point, Oprah said, look, I'm really proud of all the people doing all the wonderful things in the world, but I have chosen to focus my, a lot of my uh, humanitarian efforts on black female children in Africa. I've chosen sort of a niche for my giving in the world 
even though she gets to allow other people too. But her soul guided her to make that choice, right? Mm-hmm. And we all have to choose where we'll serve and in what capacity. And generally, your life has prepared you to want to serve where you're supposed to serve. So follow your heart in choosing where to serve, and then it'll come from that place of deep, deep passion and love, and you will not have trouble getting energy, getting money, getting connections to work. Everything will follow that passion. And how do you find that? How do you connect with that love? Uh, It's always through acts of self care and self-healing. And this is something I really learned when I was doing research for the book I wrote that was about um, sort of the healing traditions of different places as shamans and medicine people. I went looking for people who could actually heal things, like mm-hmm. who could make the magic work. And to a person, every single one of them told me the healer must be healed. That's the first order of business because a broken healer doesn't heal well. Now in our society, I, I worked with the wonderful Lisa Rankin mm-hmm. and 18 doctors who told me about the things they had done in their medical training that tortured their physical bodies. And it was literally, I have not heard this kind of horror story outside of like prison camps, what these people had to do to their bodies to become doctors. Our culture is the only one that says torture yourself to heal others. Mm-hmm. Every wisdom tradition will say heal yourself, then heal others including Jesus, for those of you who are, um, you know, Christian persuasions. Um, He said, love others as you love yourself. The word as means while you love yourself. It means because. As it is raining, I will take an umbrella. So you love others while you love yourself. You love others because you love yourself. You never love others instead of yourself. Not possible. Mm. Isn't that the truth? Not possible. And the I at least Lisa was on my show just recently. We were talking about her book uh-huh. and the work that she does, you know. Uh-huh. And it is mind blowing because whether it's doctors or people who are in the healing professions or even mothers, wouldn't you say that yeah. you know they're so the, the message that we have culturally is sacrifice yourself to take care of these other people. Yeah, and that's actually why I specifically brought up Jesus. Although every wisdom teacher says the same thing, mm-hmm. um, because our culture is based on a model that actually came from people sacrificing animals for the gods, Mm -hmm. like the evil, the angry father god who demands that something die, you know, so that he can be satisfied. We have that model of self-sacrifice, and it's been taken to the point in our culture where, you know, the holy men and women would flagellate themselves and wear hair shirts and deliberately wound themselves to show how virtuous they are. That's not virtue. It's just a wound. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people can throw rocks at me for saying that if you want, but I really don't believe that uh, Jesus' life was about that agony on the cross. I think it's about the 2,000 years that he's been like hanging out since, having what I understand is a pretty good time. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, and with the listeners, right, we can invite them to go and test it out. When they, when they take care of themselves and they uh, do self-care and self-healing, are they able to get tapped more into their love or are they living more in their fear? Yeah. You know, see how you behave with your children on a day that you've tortured yourself, haven't had enough sleep, haven't had the right food, haven't had any rest, haven't had any pleasure versus a day 
when you were able to sleep enough, where you had the right food, where you got a massage, where you've been able to go out and walk on the grass. How do you treat people when you've had those two sets of conditions? You can suck it up and pretend that you're feeling good when you're not, when you've been inflicting injury on yourself. But I promise you, it only teaches other people to inflict injury on themselves. It, It may fool their minds, but it will not fool their spirits. And that, that is so important, um, you know, such an important message for people to really understand how important it is for them to take care of themselves so that they can really help other people because that's yeah. so contrary to the message that we're constantly conditioned with, don't you think? Yep. Oh, yeah. And, you know, when babies are little, I think women are really susceptible to this because when babies are little, they actually kind of demand that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you really do have to put your own sleep aside and your own... Um, you know, that you, you would really like to lie in the sun and have a beer, but in fact, your children need you. <laughs> so there's, there's a kind of virtue to that, but, and that's why parenthood is the hardest task ever. It is one where you have to sometimes physically sacrifice your well-being. But when my kids were little and I was in chronic pain and I tried to do normal mommy things with them, um, all, they felt my exhaustion, my pain, my um almost despair at pushing my body when I was in a lot of physical pain. So then I started just doing stuff with them, like watching shows on the Discovery Channel from the bed. And it turned out they really liked doing that with me because I was happy. Mm-hmm. They could... And that taught them more about being happy than every cookie I could have baked. Mm-hmm. All the things that you think you're supposed to do because the other moms are doing it. Right. The sort of stereotypical and if you love doing those things, do them by all means. I just really was not physically up to much when my kids were little, and I thought I was a horrible, horrible failure if I didn't get up and do them. Now my kids tell me the days I failed were the days I forced myself and made, and they knew I was in pain, and mm-hmm. they were just wishing mom would take care of herself. Oh. And so you in your book, the, the Martha Beck Collection, there's this quote in there that just struck out at me, Martha, and it said, real power is usually unspectacular, a simple setting aside of fear that allows the free flow of love, but it Mm -hmm. changes everything. Yep. And I love that because do you find that people think that, okay, when I'm, you know, in my real power, when I'm living my right life, it's like the balloon, you know, the, the, the fireworks are going to go off. It's going to be this big enough event. I am the champion. (laughs) I I love this story of Aung San Suu Kyi, who is a, a great leader in Burma. Mm-hmm. Um, her father was uh, the president or the prime minister of, of Burma, and then he was assassinated, and she took up the leadership, um, sort of de facto leadership of the country in his stead, but the, the army was still against her, and she was under house arrest for years, won the Nobel Peace Prize. There was one time where she was walking through a square, and a whole platoon of soldiers was told, the fire on her and she was with other people and she actually asked the other people to step away and it's probably people say it's because she didn't want them to get hurt but I think it was also because she knew how to do the magical power of fearless compassion and she knew they weren't up to it so they got away from the picture and then she from this place of complete fearlessness walked up and walked past the soldiers and touched the guns, each gun as she walked past, and the soldiers just dropped their guns. Nobody fired on her, and no one really knows why, but I suspect it was the magic of fearless love 
that is absolutely unstoppable when it's time for it to act. Have you had an experience with fearless love that you could share with the listeners? Um, I kind of have, yeah. Um, (laughs) A lot, actually, because I have a lot of fears. Uh, When I was 14, I realized I was either going to become an agoraphobe or do something I was afraid to do every single day. So I set myself that goal. And I've been doing, putting aside my fear and doing stuff every single day since then. So in a very small way, it was, I learned to, I, I went to speech, speaking competitions. I had a horrible fear of public speaking. So I started going to debate meets and, and joining in that. And it really became the source of my ability to get up in front of people. Uh, so that's a little way. And then, you know, another time was when I, my son was diagnosed with Down syndrome before he was born. And I was told it was like a malignant tumor. You've got to get rid of it. And I went and I really, at 25, said, this is my decision to make. I'm not a victim. I can do anything I want. My, I'm, I would accept anything morally. What would I do if I had no fear? And the answer was, I love this baby already, and I want him in my life. And I was destroyed with fear. I mean, did not sleep for a very long time. Grieved for a very long time. But it was one of the best things I ever did. I felt I had goosebumps when you told that story. Uh, um, but what about judgment from others? Because especially with, with Adam's diagnosis, there was tremendous judgment. Tons. Right. Oh, and other things I've done. Hello. The book I wrote about religion, not popular <laughs> among members of my former religion. Um, I can't even tell you how unpopular. Um, I got death threats for that, and that was very... You know, it was very much every single day during the writing of it, put fear aside, put fear aside. What would you do if you had no fear? What would you do if you had, I mean, it was just a constant. So um, that was a question. And how do you handle <laughs> the judgment from others? Cause, I mean, oh, yeah. I came up with something recently. I was writing another book, and I was writing about my son, Adam, and I said, you know, here's what I feared and here's the truth. And what I feared was my son would have a blighted life, blah, blah. The truth is, and I put, I live with a spiritual master. And then I thought, okay, I've got to go back and make this non-denominational, and it has to work for atheists and all that stuff. And then I realized, it just is my truth. So what I wrote down was, I live with a spiritual master. If you disagree with me, I respectfully do not care. (laughs) And that is my answer to every, if you don't like my cowboy boots, I respectfully do not care. If you think I shouldn't have written that book, I respectfully do not care. I really don't. I love you. I do not care. And it's because I don't care what you think that I'm able to love you, no matter what you think of me. Mm-hmm. So the secret is not caring. <laughs> and you're doing it in, in, in alignment with yourself because you're being respectful in that manner of this is, this is true for me. And if it's not true for you, that is fine. I have great respect for you. I have great love for you. We can play together. And I do not care what you think of my belief system as it is right now. I'll listen to you. I'll really consider your your opinion. I really want to know where I'm wrong. I'm always saying that. Tell me where I'm wrong. Tell me where I'm wrong. But if something feels really right to me, I'm just not going to, I just don't have time to pretend it's not right for me Mm -hmm. because I'm afraid of what you'll think. I just respectfully do not care what you think. I'm going to follow my soul's best guess at the truth. And and for for the listeners out there that this is like, 
oh, you know, holy moly, you've been doing this for a long time. How's it worked for yeah. you, Martha? Um, first of all, I can love people much more freely, uh, much more joyfully when I don't care what they think of me. Um, oh my gosh. And then I, you know, like the, the clients I work with who are wealthy and powerful and I mean, not all of them, my clients are wealthy and powerful, but I do work with some people who are very wealthy and powerful. And as long as they care what others think, they're prisoners. They have no freedom. Everything is about what the papers will say, what this person will say, what that person will say, what the tabloids will say. You just have to get to a point where you really don't care what they say. Ooh. So there's a lot more freedom. Infinite freedom. And, but not freedom from other people's judgment. Because mm-hmm. that will be there. It, yeah, and it has no effect on you, on your inner life, as long as you choose not to care about it. Well, and what I learned, you know, from working with you and and um, doing this work is that, because I used to be very afraid, is that I find that you find your people. You find the people that tend to be like you or that will at least have the space to allow for the differences to occur, that we don't all have yeah, to fit I mean, in and be the same. Yeah, instead of sticking with a relationship and say, you know, if there's somebody in your life that you call your friend every day, oh my gosh, this is what he's going to hurt my feelings this day, this day. If that is happening all the time and you're still with that person, trying to please that person in your life, you have just imprisoned yourself with a predatory animal that is destroying you. That's not a wise move. If you start speaking up and this person who's been so impossible doesn't like it mm-hmm. and they leave, that's not abandonment. That's freedom. Over and over and over, I've watched clients have the courage to do that. And they always thought, oh, they were going to feel so abandoned and bad in the, in the aftermath. And instead they're like, oh, my God, it was myself I missed. The self that I was putting aside to be acceptable to this person. Oh. That's why I was so desperate and lonely. Now that I'm, not, I'm being true to myself, I actually can enjoy solitude. And I don't miss that person that was so hard for me to deal with, that I thought I had to change and please. Because just, you're with yourself now. Exactly. And you have your connection to yourself, which is connection to all things. Um, and how can you be lonely when you actively feel your connection with all things? And then what about, what do you have to say about disrespect from others? Because I, I'll hear that a lot. People say, well, they disrespected me or they disrespect me. What are your thoughts about that? The only part of me that really gets bent out of shape about respect is, um, well, there are two ways. One is when your ego has been wounded. And the other is when something is genuinely wrong. So if you feel that you've been disrespected because someone is not acknowledging your grandeur, um, that is, you're going to feel that as an insatiable desire. No one will ever be able to respect you enough. Mm-hmm. The other kind of respect is if you're standing on my foot and I ask you to leave, to, to put your, you know, step mm-hmm. somewhere else so my foot is not crushed, that's asking you to respect my space. It comes as a repair of the boundary and save it. So healthy anger is a God-given emotion that repairs a boundary that has been violated. So if somebody's respect, disrespecting you actively, like impinging on you in a way that you know is not just, your soul will tell you to politely, firmly, maybe even physically, protest. <laughs> 
and change that situation. But if you're just thinking, oh, I just don't get any respect, that's probably your ego, and you need to just watch it and smile and see that it is insatiable and go on with the part of yourself that can achieve peace. And with the person that may be coming in to you and, and trying to hurt you, is that also your responsibility of setting up boundaries? Is that what you mean by protesting? Yes. Whatever you can do. If, if you're in prison and somebody is abusing you and you can't get out, you're ju- there's really no option for you except to find inner peace, mm-hmm. like deep inner peace. That's an especially challenging situation. But in most of our lives, the people who are what we see as constraining us and treating us disrespectfully um, are not that much more powerful than we are. And if we're willing to, to claim our space, claim the boundary, find the thing that restores justice and say, look, this is not working for me. It feels very wrong. Here's what would make it feel better for me. Here's what feels just to me. And you say that and they don't hear you then you either escalate your demand or escalate your request or you leave them. You know, if your boss is doing something horribly, horribly disrespectful to you, like making you work double overtime without pay, mm-hmm. you have, in, in behavioral theory, you have three options. One is loyalty, and in this case that means just keep your mouth shut and go with the system. That will kill you quickly with cancer and heart disease or whatever. Mm-hmm. The next one is voice. And that is to say, this is what is disrespectful and harmful to me. If it does not go away, I will separate myself. And this is the last option. It's called exit. And voice has no power without the threat of exit. So you have to be willing to say, if this doesn't change, I am afraid I'm going to have to leave this relationship, this job, whatever it is. And you need to follow through. You need to live a life of justice as you've identified it to be free from anger. Mm-hmm. I, those are great steps that you gave for the listeners. Um, and, and you've experienced that, right? You've, you've actually had to leave. Like you wrote the book that you wrote about leaving your religion. You, yeah. you, you actually you used your voice and you left. Yep. And, you know, people say, why did you do that? And the answer was that something in me was speaking that was so deep that I knew if I did not do it, I could not feel like an honest person. I, I, I felt like it would be a violation of my own integrity not to do certain things. As Solzhenitsyn says, there are times when silence is a lie. And it, I knew in my heart and soul that it would have been a lie for me not to write that book. So despite the incredible pressure not to do it, it, it was never an option not to do it. Well, you know, that I, I, I just won't give up my soul. And, I, you know, through the through the years, the people that I've met in that book that you wrote and had the lives that it's touched and influenced has been so great. And um, and even my own life, because I used to I remember the very first time I had interviewed you back like in 2007, I think. And, you know, I used to have this belief that, oh, if you're successful, you, you've never had any problems. And I think that's when you first told me, Corinne, I have been to hell and back. And, and, yeah. uh, you know, and, and I think so that book has resonated with so many people and it's helped so many people. Granted, you had to go through a rough road with, but you know, yeah, the first time I, when I was feeling really bad because all the people who hated me for writing that book and hated the book and most of them had never read it, they were too angry to read it. Um, I started getting letters from people 
who said it should help them be free. And I stopped counting at 2,000 of those mm-hmm. letters, but two would have been enough. One would have been enough mm-hmm. to, to set one other person free from that particular hell. And I'm not saying religion. I'm saying uh, free from the belief that God comes to you in cruel people. That, that is not the way God has proven to function in my life. And that was just what I was people free from. And if it worked for just one person, it would have been plenty to justify everything for me, what I'd gone through and the writing of it and everything. So Martha, uh, last weekend I was in Portland and I was with these fabulous women. I was at a workshop and um, this one woman, she'd gone, she's been through a lot of pain and um, in her life and she's really changed her life and it's, she's got a very cool story. And, but one of the things that I told her is I said, Oh, you know, I, there's this great book and I'd invite you to read it. It's, it's Martha Beck's leaving the saint. And, um, they had just gotten done read. She'd just gotten done reading, uh, one of your other books. Um, but so she was, so she was really excited to read it, but you know, she had had this family that it wasn't a very good family where her family always told her not to have a voice. And when, as an adult, as a female adult, uh, one of her best friends, parents wound up adopting her and gave her the family and the sister that she always wanted. And then, yeah, uh, that's awesome. So, and so your book, your work has helped people. And I know that book just from the people that I've come into contact with through the years has helped people. You have that evidence. And so I guess I invite the listeners to think that sometimes we'll say, well, who am I? Or I don't want to face this fear, but we never really do know how we can affect others. Do we? Yeah. And that was the least powerful story of my life. It was like, I felt more disempowered there than ever. So what can a five-year-old girl do? Because I was still sort of, there was a part of me that had experienced trauma at five. And it's like, that was the least powerful moment of my life. But giving it a voice ended up being the most powerful, influential sort of stance I'd ever had to take. And it was not easy. I did not become, I'm a huge people pleaser. It did not become suddenly easy for me to stand against all the people I loved and say, you know, even if you don't want me to tell this story, I respectfully do not care. I want to talk about, so can we now segue into kind of approval? Because on the side of the worrying about judgment from others, there's the other side where I used to be what I call an approval whore. Like I was always out there doing this monkey dance to try to get people to like me, right? And, uh-huh. and it may be, you know, it's, it, I think it's still kind of the same thing, isn't it? As worrying about judgment, it's you're trying to get people to yeah. like you. It is. And it's like, you know, I said earlier that somebody who's uh, uh, free to have everything they desire is still a slave of desire. Every mystical, every spiritual tradition talks about um, the fact that you can get to the point where you are, um, Free from the desire for approval and fear from for the from the fear of judgment. So every time you live your life trying to pursue something and you feel that grasping sensation of wanting it, whether it's approval or money or whatever, you can know you're really in service of your ego and it's not going to make you happy. On the other hand, um, you can focus completely on fear. I'm afraid of being abandoned. I'm afraid of being disliked. I'm afraid of what they'll do. Then you not only get no pleasure, your life is dominated by fear and it never makes you happy. So seeking approval and fearing judgment are exact. They're two sides of the same coin. And that's what you have to free yourself from with contemplation, with 
reading, with self-development, with everything we do. And do you have, what do you do to free yourself from approval? Um, I, I do things that cause people to disapprove me. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, the, the big thing I've already said is to become the witness of your own fears, to watch without, um, without necessarily moving in any way, except to observe your own emotions. And um, after a while, you realize you're not the one who is afraid. You're the one who's watching from a place that cannot be harmed. And at that point, you're no longer a slave of the monkey mind. You're more like a, a sane, happy person who has a crazy monkey for a pet. <laughs> the monkey's staying, okay? Let's just get that clear. The monkey <laughs> will always be there. But you can ha- be a person who is very sane and is in really good control of your crazy pet monkey. And it's not a reflection of you. No, it's a reflection of the way the brain is structured. Okay. <laughs> so approval seeking, just notice it. Notice the grasping, ickiness. You call that approval horror, that feeling mm-hmm. that I'm prostituting myself to get someone to like me. Very, very clear. And just when you do that, oh, there it goes again. And then choose to respectfully not care what it advises you to do. And that will help with that, that graspy energy that we feel when somebody is trying to get our approval. Because it oh, doesn't yeah. feel and good. It's ickiest. No, that, it's, uh, it, that's the irony is trying to get everyone to approve of you makes no one approve of you. <laughs> mm. um, and then, hmm, I, I guess one of the things that I wanted to talk about was inner voice. And is inner voice the same thing as the language that we talked about earlier? Well, there is the inner voice of the harping critic, and then there's something that is beyond words that is just a knowing. And voice is almost the wrong word for it because it doesn't speak verbally, but it is something that we experience as a message to the heart. So in that sense, it does speak, but it's nonverbal. It's a deep, deep, deep knowing. It's the way you know that you love a person you love. It's that kind of knowing. It's not something you logically prove or you're doing it because it's something that you feel deeply, but it's also not just an emotion. It's a knowing. I can't really be more specific than that, but I think almost everyone's experienced it, if only in moments. Well, if you've had a relationship or if it's just something that drives you and it may not even make logical sense, but it's just you want to be there. You want to do this. Yeah, it might be something that you you put in your house that you just thought, I really, I need that in my space. And you, you don't know really why little decisions like that um, have the same energy pattern as big decisions like whom you're going to marry or what you're going to do with your life. But if you practice feeling that sense of knowing what's right for you in the little ways, then when it comes to the big things, you can sort of laugh in the face of others' disapproval and do what's right from the soul. When I started doing Bikram yoga about four or five years ago, um, I just went with my husband once as a date, and um, and then I decided to keep going back. And it was so that strange. That is literally a hot date. <laughs> that is yes, it is a hot date, a hot date with a hot <laughs> man. But uh, <laughs> and I continued to go, and it did not make sense to me because I don't like to be told what to do. I don't like stinky, smelly rooms. I don't like the heat. There were all 90 degrees. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There's so many things I didn't like, but I kept going. And and that must, that's what I'm linking to this, like knowing it's like there was something that was literally pulling me out of my bed to say, no, go to the 6 a.m. class. Yeah. I love it when some, this is the way I started meditating for hours at a time. 
it, it was like there was no reason to do it. There was every reason not to. I mean, I've got so many other things that people want me to do. And it was like, hmm, you know, we just used the word voice, but it was like a magnetic sensation, uh, like a very intense super magnet pulling mm-hmm. on me. Like there was no denying it. And it made no sense. And I love that stuff because that's always when the best things happen. Well, that is. No, that's so great. So, so voice or just a sense of knowing and it's not, it's out of the language. It's out of it, that left brain. Yeah. You actually know it because it feels like peace and it feels like freedom. It is not always comforting. Very often it comes with enormous amounts of fear. What will people think? How will I do that? Oh, that scares me. What, that's too hot and, and whatever. <laughs> but it will come with a peace, a sense of peace and a sense of liberation. Mm. That's how you know it's the soul. Yeah, yeah, because I can't say that Bikram yoga is uh, comforting. Or it's... Uh, uh, no, I mean, working out in general is not always comfortable. Sometimes it's intensely uncomfortable. But what's the net effect on your life? Does it feel like freedom? Yes. The net effect. Yes, my brain does a lot better too. After yeah, this. you're getting freed from the constraints of your of your normal brain patterns by this very unusual activity, and your soul wants that. So, Martha, in the beginning of the show, you had said the goal, our goal, is to be free from all fear. And with that being said, is the fear still kind of like that little monkey that we have that will oh, always yeah. be with us? Yeah, you're not free from it in the sense that it goes away. I mean, I, I, I've heard of people getting to that point. I've been certainly not to it. What you're free from is having to obey it. You just don't have to obey it. You realize you never, ever had to obey it. You could always just break the rules and stop obeying the fear. And people might not like you for it, and you might go through some scary times, but I guarantee you, you will live closer to your true destiny if you don't act on fear than if you let it command your entire life. Well, I mean, don't you think your life has changed so much because you are willing to face your fears and to write the books and to speak what you needed to say? It was the decision I made that day. I was 14 years old. I will choose to do every single day something that scares me every single day. And I was so phobic and so anxious and such a mess. And I would say, oh, that scares me. All right, there's a reason to do it. (laughs) Seriously. And then when you get used to things, they stop scaring you. So that means that to find things that scare you, you have to do bigger things in order to keep that promise to do something scary every day. So writing really fills the bill. It's terrifying anytime you sit down at a blank page. Um, But when that doesn't happen, I still find a way to accept doing something that frightens me every single day. Do you ever That's get freedom? <laughs> do you ever get tired of finding those things? Um, I get terrified sometimes. <laughs> um, tired? Uh, no, I never get tired of the challenge. But the way I never get tired of skiing. Sometimes I get tired during a day of skiing. Mm-hmm. But the the thrill of skiing for me, for those of you who don't know ski, is that every time you turn downhill a little. Your speeds, your skis speed up, and it feels like you're going to crash for just a fraction of a second, even if you're a really good skier. And then the skis, if you hold your form and lean into the very direction you're afraid to fall, then the physics of the skis come around and bring you back into a curve and sort of rescue you. And it's like 
second by second by second, you go into fear and, and find your way out. Go in, find your way out. Go in, find your way out. I never get tired of that. Well, and I, and I thought one day I realized when I was getting ready for a radio show and I always get nervous, you know, because you never know what's going to happen or how that's going right. to connect. It's every week. I it's could, a new thing, right? Yes. I tend to start swearing like a pirate. <laughs> <in> a <minute. laughs> and, and I think about, you know, one day I said, oh, my goodness, Corinne, this is just like when you were a swimmer. All those years, uh-huh. it was, you know, you had to show up and you went to a swim meet or you went to practice and you didn't know, were you able to accomplish what you wanted to, you know, yep. what what were you going to do? And I remember thinking as a swimmer, I was like, okay, I will be done with this at some point and then I can go and just live in the promised land. But mm-hmm. without making Good the, luck with that. <laughs> yeah, without making that conscious decision like you did at 14, I have found things like the radio show or lots of other aspects of my life where I'm showing up to a lot of uncertainty, which brings my fear. And then yeah. I work through it. And afterwards, I'm like, oh, I feel that yeah, way. it's like J.R. Tolkien, when he wrote Lord of the Rings, he'd written a lot of academic papers and he'd never been afraid. But when he sent off his manuscript for Lord of the Rings, he wrote to a friend, I have put up my heart to be shot at. And that's how you know that you're really on your path, that your heart is in it. And there is no way to do that without being afraid. And Jesus himself was afraid of his own mission. And he did it anyway. So feel the fear and do it anyway. It's kind of a good rule for life. (laughs) All right. Two takeaways for listeners who want to practice living in their true power. First, get still and find out what your body wants you to do, what causes relaxation and opening and excitement in the body, even if you're scared. Secondly, work on respectfully not caring what anyone's reaction to you is. So as you start to become more and more aware of the messages from your soul, you become less and less inhibited by fear. And then the soul says, aha, she's listening, he's listening. And it starts sending more messages and giving you more feedback and life can become a huge joy ride if you just don't do those two things. Martha, thank you so much. Thank you, Corinne. It's always so much fun to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to How She Really Does It. I invite you to subscribe to my weekly newsletter at howshereallydoesit.com. I do this show each week for you so you can now see the windows of possibilities in your own life. I believe there are many journeys for us to take. We can learn from others to see what is possible for ourselves. I believe there are possibilities for all of us, not just the ones who've acquired great success, but including those of us who have stumbled, lost our way, or only saw closed doors. With this show, maybe you can now see a glimmer coming through the windows. I call that the windows of possibility. Each week, I bring a guest who represents those possibilities. They too have had their own struggles and uncertainty, yet somehow they have found their way. My guests are an example of what is possible when you continue, when you learn, leap, fall down, and get back up. I invite you into this space so you can ask yourself, If that is possible for them, what is possible for me? Really ask yourself that. I would love to connect with you. Please join me at 
howshereallydoesit.com. And thanks for listening today. On a lake, she is dreaming, she is drifting, never been so wide awake.